Hi, welcome to Grace Intercept. The goal of this podcast is to help us have an increasingly clear understanding of grace. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer. Thank you for joining us today. It was called an experiment. In 1790, as president, George Washington wrote a letter to one of his friends, Catherine Sawbridge Macaulay Graham, saying, The establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment for promoting human happiness by reasonable compact in a civil society. It was to be, in the first instance, in a considerable degree, a government of accommodation as well as a government of laws. Much was to be done by prudence, much by conciliation, much by firmness. Later, in 1804, as president, Thomas Jefferson wrote to Judge John Tyler the following, No experiment can be more interesting than that which we are now trying, and which we trust will end in establishing the fact that man may be governed by reason and truth. With the creation of the United States of America, the idea of a democratic republic was put into practice. It was based on the legal structure of the Constitution, which was built on the foundational philosophical principles of the Declaration of Independence. Having three branches of government, each delicately designed with checks on and balances with each other, was brilliant. But it was all an experiment. It had never been done before. Basically, the political reality of the world up to that point had been, one, ruled by tyrants, which led to the opposition of many through the tyranny of one, and two, ruled by democracy, which also led to the oppression of the fewer through the tyranny of the more. So, could this really last? For how long? To make this experiment work, in 1798, as President, John Adams wrote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. This noble experiment in self-government is still happening. It has done remarkably well from an historical perspective. Far from perfect, many adjustments have been made over the almost 250 years of existence. How long will it last? Well, it is of human construction and operated by humans. So, who knows? We do know that it will never be perfect, nor will it ever be replaced by anything perfect, if humans have anything to do with it. Why are our political institutions, or any of our institutions of any kind, Just look at the various institutions anywhere in the world or in history. Why are they so flawed? Why haven't we been able to produce even a short-term utopia? Sincere, smart people have been dedicating themselves to this ideal over the centuries. Well, rather simply, I think it's because every institution has something in common. People. People like you and me. Humans are the essence of our institutions. We are who build them, keep them running, and destroy them. There has to be a better way. There is. God has a plan, and it's not an experiment. Because it's God's plan and not ours, it is just what we need. Many Christians look to the Bible to understand that plan. In doing so, many confuse the Old and New Testaments. Sometimes it's approached almost like an experiment. Will it work? For how long? This can happen when we look at the New Testament through the lens of the Old Testament instead of the other way around. That was my problem for most of my life. Here is what I have come to clearly understand. Jesus is the essence of the New Testament. The New Testament wouldn't exist without him. 
As stated in previous episodes of Grace Intersect, the New Testament isn't an upgrade from the Old Testament. It is standalone, brand new. None of the Old Testament carries any moral or eternal enforcement. Jesus was God's ultimate plan from the beginning, a way through which a human life can be lived in faith and freedom forever. And this is only through His love, kindness, and grace, not through anything of our own doing. Jesus, though eternal in spirit, became as human as you and me to usher in the New Testament. First, He lived a humanly perfect life. He experienced humanity even as we do. He just did it better. He did it perfectly. In doing so, he fulfilled to perfection the requirements of the Old Testament. Beyond fulfilling the legal obligations of the Old Testament laws, he fulfilled the intent of the law, the moral meaning, the purpose, the spirit of the law. In doing so, he was fully qualified to provide the perfect payment for the high and deadly cost of human imperfection. Jesus often referred to the Old Testament when talking with people. Sometimes he would use the specifics of the law to show the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He pointed out how impossible it was for imperfect humans to observe it perfectly. Some religious leaders found it easy to find fault in others' failings while excusing or ignoring their own. While some hated to hear that message, they really couldn't deny it. Sometimes he would reference the Old Testament law to explain what the spirit of the law was, like in the Sermon on the Mount. That was even harder to hear. It was tough enough to try to keep all of the law perfectly in practice, and then Jesus would take it to the intended level, the spirit of the law. The point in all of his teaching was to set up his main message. God has some really, really good news. Because of his great love, God would extend grace toward his human creation. He was providing a way for them to have an eternal love relationship with him and with each other. Just think, when dealing with the hopelessness of the human condition, that is, continually failing to figure out how to make the world a perfect place, Jesus says to quit expecting perfection and let God take care of it. That is good news indeed. Jesus also talked to future believers about the time following his resurrection. He would say things like, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Or, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These metaphors are intense, impassioned, powerful. Jesus is helping us understand that we can be in an intimate, affectionate, melded spiritual relationship with Him. To put it simply, in Jesus is life itself. We literally, spiritually live in Him and He in us. And because He lives forever, so do we, with Him and with each other. This deserves some serious processing. Feel free to pause and contemplate the power of His words or come back to them later. 
Jesus speaks of the coming Holy Spirit when he says, These things have I spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. He also said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus was here in flesh and blood. He told his followers that he would go back to heaven to be with his Father God. He assured them that, even better than actually being here with them face to face, would be the Holy Spirit who would abide, would live within them. He would spiritually teach, counsel, and strengthen them. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, would really be life itself. Jesus also promised to return, literally. He had been here in the flesh and said he would come back in some kind of bodily form at some point in the future. He said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So Jesus' messages weren't just about the Old Testament law-focused era, though oftentimes they were. Sometimes Jesus spoke Old Testament law-based messages that were specifically designed for his then-present gathering. His audience was well-versed in their religious laws, and he challenged their thinking about them. From experience, they knew they couldn't keep all of the laws perfectly. However, many of the religious leaders tried to require impeccable law-keeping of the people, as if they could. Obviously, their purpose wasn't altruistic. Laws were used as a means of power and control. In fact, the religious leaders made up a bunch more laws to help interpret and expand the ones in the Old Testament. They pushed these on the people just as hard as the ones God had given. I'm sure you can think of religious, political, or social examples from your own knowledge and experience. In some ways, Jesus seemed to be doing something similar, except he was altruistic. Making the law an end in itself is typically a human problem. We want boxes to check, performances to grade, tangible measurements of progress or regression. However, Jesus elevated the practice of law-keeping to the spiritual level. This took the law beyond just trying hard to keep it without fail. This took it out of just the human realm. Jesus wanted them to know that God desired a love relationship with them, but not on their terms, with their imperfections. It would have to be on his terms. They would have to see their own personal human failings and the impossibility of them making themselves perfect. They would have to come to understand that God would extend mercy and grace to bring them into his perfection. God would do this through a spiritual redemption made possible by Jesus. Jesus' messages also referred to the time following his death and resurrection in which there would be a New Testament. There would be many statements of Jesus that show the heart of God and the message of the kingdom of God in a New Testament way. We may focus more on those in future episodes of Grace Intersect, but for now, we are looking at some of what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. A good way to do that might be to start with the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, a book written to the Jewish people about Jesus and the New Testament. The writer points out that to have a testament, there needs to be a death. He puts it this way. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. 
Just think of how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant, or testament, between God and the people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that they had committed under the first covenant, or the Old Testament. Now, when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that that person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made the will is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. Okay, makes sense, right? Through the death of Jesus, a New Testament came into being. Once it goes into effect, the Old Testament is obsolete. The Hebrew writer says it this way, When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. God is wanting us to see and accept the good news of his grace for a relationship with him. He has a new way for us to relate to him. We are not to look back to the Old Testament laws as the basis of our relationship with him. Why would we, when it is, by God's own design, dated, and it will disappear? Other New Testament writers have had much to say regarding the role of the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament book called Acts. This book was written by a Dr. Luke. He records the startups of the developing groups of Christians right after the resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Luke mentions two followers of Jesus named Paul and Barnabas who were speaking to a group of people in the town of Antioch in what is now Turkey. Included in their message was this. Brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight, something the law of Moses could never do. Dr. Luke also reports that a close friend of Jesus named Peter was having a discussion with other Christian leaders about the gospel message going to non-Jews, to the Gentiles. Peter said to them, So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. One of the most educated among the new Christians was a Jewish religious leader named Paul. Initially, he headed up the persecution of Christian groups in the Mediterranean area. After he literally saw the light, he became a Christian. He wrote letters to many groups, some of which have been included in the New Testament portion of the Bible. He wrote one called Romans. In Romans, he had a lot to say about the Old Testament and the Gospel. In chapter 3, speaking of the Old Testament law, he states, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. 
Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Well, that's pretty plain, wouldn't you say? He goes on to give the Roman readers, many or most of whom are Gentiles, a bit of a history lesson about God's relationship with Abraham. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nature. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that's not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Paul's description of a relationship with God is one where we can accept God's grace, the gift of Jesus. We believe in Him, and it is counted to us as righteousness. There is no amount of effort that we can give to earning a relationship with God. This following part of Romans is really beautiful. But God showed His love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Bottom line, it's not about how well we can keep laws or perform good behavior. It's about how God has provided through Jesus a plan to bring us into relationship with Him. That's what grace is. Grace for our failings through faith in the perfection of Jesus. Now Paul explains more in-depth the contrast between the Old Testament law and God's grace. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ, and now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God, but now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. 
Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I don't know about you, but that kind of gives me chills, goosebumps, tingles. Wow, how good and loving is God. Nothing you and I build will last forever, but we can trust God with a present and a future that He has built. The American experiment may come to an end. God's grace is no experiment. It is as forever as Jesus is. Thanks for listening today. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer, and this is the Grace Intersect Podcast. As we process grace together, please know that your thoughts and or questions are always welcome. Comments may be made at the graceintersect.com website or by emailing comments at graceintersect.com. Have a great day.